the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We're back. We're live after the holiday yesterday, and it seems like there's nobody on the streets. So if you happen to be one of the few on the streets, please, please, please be very, very careful. Drive carefully. We care a lot about you. And maybe you can just kind of get home, kick back, listen to the radio show. And since you don't have anything else to do because it's too cold outside, you can call us with your questions about what we believe as Christians and why. Hi, I'm Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. This is a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions. We want you to know that you can trust the Bible. Our phone numbers are 340-9585. That's 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And especially today, if you're out in the streets in your car, use the KSLR uh, mobile app. It's free, and the hands-free feature makes it real easy. Just hit the Call Now button, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. We had school canceled today, as I think everybody else did. Still haven't heard about what's going on tomorrow, but I know it's not going to get any um, warmer for tomorrow. Uh, We're also just told that it's snowing in Houston. Glad we're not there, but just be safe and stay warm. One more time, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Hope you had a great weekend in church, and I hope you had a great holiday yesterday celebrating the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Uh, one of the giants of uh, my lifetime, um, responsible for galvanizing uh, the American Civil Rights Movement, and of course, um, all of us have benefited as a result. So I hope you had a great, great day yesterday. Well, let me get to some questions. We've got some good ones that have been sent in, but remember, your phone calls are always a little bit better. Here is a question from our email inbox from Lori. She says, in Genesis thirty-four twenty-nine, it says that after Simeon and Levi slaughtered all the males in Shechem, that they took all their children and wives and led them away as captives. There's no more mention of them, including Jacob and his family. As they go down to Egypt, any idea what happened to them? Is there mention of them anywhere else in Scripture? Uh, Lori, there is. This is one of the most um, embarrassing and disgraceful times in Israel's history. Um, Getting revenge for the rape of their daughter, uh, using religion and circumcision. Um, Make no mistake, this was a premeditated plan uh, and... and, um, the worst possible hypocrisy. Jacob, uh, the men's father, was devastated by it. Um, but when Jacob was about to die, Lord, he prophesied over each of his 12, fun, 12 sons. 
Now, this is what he said about Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let my, not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, in fact, many of them. And in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's Genesis chapter 49. Uh, Jacob obviously uh, saw through the appearance of spirituality, religiosity in those two men. Um, But he, um, and rebuked them. Uh, The problem is he wasn't as involved in their life growing up as he needed to be. Now, this word of God through Jacob, the prophet uh, in this in this moment, uh, proved to be true. God did, in fact, divide both the tribes of Simeon and Levi. They scattered them among Israel. Um, it happened differently for each tribe, but it happened. Uh, Simeon, because of their lack of faithfulness, was effectively dissolved as a tribe. The tribe of Simeon was absorbed into the tribal area of Judah. The tribe of Levi also scattered. Um, but because of the faithfulness of, of Levi during the rebellion of the golden calf in Exodus 32, uh, the tribe was scattered as a blessing throughout the whole nation of Israel. So uh, it did come true. Uh, we don't have stories about um, specifically what happened to them, but uh, Jacob's prophecies did prove true. So I hope that uh, answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. By the way, Lori at the end of her email said, "Ooh, it's cold in New Brunswick. So it's cold here in Universal City, as well." Uh, here is another question from our email inbox from Richard. Richard says, "I've begun to read Genesis again, and have noticed in Genesis one one the word heavens. Is this relating to the seven layers of our atmosphere, which we call the mesosphere, the troposphere, and such?" Thank you for the end, such Richard. Uh, in Genesis one twenty four and twenty five, are they both synonymous in description? In Genesis in Genesis two nine, the description of the in the passage looks like it's talking of two trees, and in Genesis two seventeen, it appears it is describing one. I'm basing these passages from the wording in the New Living Translation. Richard, um, um, relative to the heavens, uh, he's talking about sort of the abode of the stars. God created those things, uh, and he would have been described, it would have been described rather as God created them. So this is just the abode of the stars. We look up in the sky and we see what's out there, and that's basically the same thing. So that one's an easy one. Um, to deal with. Um, In Genesis 2, um, I think it reads very clearly, so I want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding your question. Genesis 2.9 says, The Lord made all kinds of trees, plural, grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the tree were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we've got is a whole forest. Imagine the Garden of Eden in its perfect state. And uh, trees were everywhere. Food was abundant. Uh, in the middle of the garden, there were two trees. The tree of life, which would later be guarded by the chariot with a flaming sword. Uh, and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, in um, the Genesis account, um, the focus was on the two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But it doesn't exclude all of the other trees. Uh, all of the other trees, Richard, um, deal with it um, pretty much the same way. So uh, it's it's just lots and lots of trees. In verse 17 that you asked about in chapter 2, um, God tells them, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a singular tree that they were forbidden. Now, here's why that matters, um, Richard. Um, so often we humans, because we're descendants of Adam, he's our federal head. Uh, because of that, um, we have a tendency to want what we can't have instead of enjoying all the stuff that we do have. God has blessed us abundantly just as he's blessed Adam and Eve in the Genesis account. And they could eat from everything. The food was pleasing uh, to uh, to Adam and Eve from all of the trees. 
And yet there was one tree, only one tree that was forbidden. And that one tree that was forbidden, Richard, was the one that they gravitated towards, the one that Eve was hanging around when Satan, in the form of the serpent, uh, standing upright, the serpent was different than after the curse, um, that's the one he would have found her by when he found her by something she wasn't supposed to be around or something that she wasn't supposed to eat from. That's when she was available to be tempted. So she was deceived. Adam, of course, we know, ate of his own free will, uh, choosing, in essence, relationship with Eve over relationship with God. So I hope that answers your question, and I hope that's clear enough for you, Richard, because to me it seems really clear there's all kinds of trees, but there are only two trees that are singled out. One of them uh, is a tree that was forbidden, and of course that's the tree that caused all of the trouble. So thank you for the question. Uh, Here is a question from... Our email inbox from Anonymous. Dear Pastor Ron, what advice can you offer a 22-year-old girl going through stage 3 colon cancer who does not want to let anybody know so that people won't relate to her through the filter of her illness only? Uh, I believe, and this is the person who's writing the question, I believe no one should live through something so difficult on their own. She is a believer who serves God currently and is suffering side effects of treatment. Anonymous, um, we don't know who this girl is, obviously, but our hearts go out, and uh, I will be praying. I know uh, our audience will be praying for this girl. These are really, really difficult things. Now, what I have to say, I want you to understand, is said through um, the depth of love that God has poured into my heart. You're absolutely right. No one should go through something so difficult on their own. No one should go through something like this. That's the reason God sets us in families. That's why the church body is so important. No one has to suffer through anything alone. Now, when we say we don't want to be, or in this case, the the young woman said that we don't want to be related to through the filter of her illness only, one of the things that she needs to understand, and this is where she needs a good friend and a counselor, and this is a great time to take her to a pastor. Right now, she is her cancer. I don't mean to be, uh, to be offensive by saying that, but cancer is what she's going through with God. This is something that as she recovers, God will use for his glory and will open up a wide field of ministry for this young woman. This young woman right now is in a place where she can be taught so much about Jesus, where she can feel a closeness to Jesus that isn't possible apart from these kinds of trials. So she needs to sort of, again, I don't want to sound unkind, but get over herself. This is an opportunity to not only minister to others, but God uses everything for his good. And she'll have an opportunity as she lets people know about her illness, she'll have an opportunity to minister to people that she otherwise would never have met. She'll be able to help put people's much smaller trials in perspective. When she's weak, Paul says, she'll find out she's really strong because she'll have to depend on Jesus. Not only that, but this is an opportunity to enlist the body in active prayer for her. And when I say active prayer, more people will be praying. She'll feel the power of those prayers. And God delights when his people pray. If they don't know, then there won't be anybody praying. So it's very important. As a pastor, it breaks my heart when Paul and I find out that somebody's been going through something and we didn't know. I respect people's privacy. If they don't want me to share with anybody, I won't. However... I always look at them and tell them, we could have been praying for you. You don't have to go through this alone. And I'm fearful that a lot of our human positive thinking psychology has found its way into the body of Christ. And sometimes we think we'll just deny it. 
We don't want to say anything. When in fact, this is a time when God will use this young woman as never before. So I'll be praying for her. Please keep me posted anonymous. I pray that you'll be able or somebody else will be able to get through to her. What we want is for the body of Christ to come around and provide comfort. And she will be surrounded by people who have been through what she's going through. They'll be able to speak into her life. They'll be able to speak words of encouragement and strength. It's always good when you're this sick to see people that have survived it. She'll be able to hear the stories of how God delivered them, how God brought them through. And just ask her to pray about it. She's a Christian. She loves Jesus. She serves. Ask her to pray. Now, even as I give that counsel anonymous, I'm like a super private person. But here's what I know. If my life is on the line, I want people praying. Not just that I would get better, but that I would have the strength of God's Spirit to rightly represent Him through it. Those are really, really important considerations. So please tell her that you emailed me, didn't tell me any names, and people here at Calvary Chapel will be praying for, and now our listening audience will be praying as well. God bless this young woman. Um, I pray that she'll get some comfort in fellowship. Hard ones. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Adam. He says, "Why is it that preachers say Jesus's life? I'm sorry, Jesus's death is more important than his life." Well, I don't think we say that his death was more important. Um, his death was just necessary. Without his death, then there's no value. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, no forgiveness. And without his death, you and I are lost. So Jesus came here. He was born to die. Adam, Jesus didn't have hopes for a future with a family or a career. Jesus came, and every day he walked, he walked toward that cross at Calvary. And so for you and for me, his death is what matters. Now, his life was perfect. If he hadn't lived a perfect life, well, then for sure we wouldn't be saved either. But he lived a perfect life, and he taught us how to live, and he left us with his word. And upon preparing to die, he left us with his spirit, not wanting to leave us alone. So all of that mattered, Adam. It mattered very, very much. But... It is his death that saved us. It was his death that was his purpose in coming in the first place. So that's why we say his death was really, really important. And we're not denigrating the value of his life. It's just that he fulfilled his father's mission. This is my son, the father said, in whom I'm well pleased. And the greatest statement of God's pleasure, the Father's pleasure, was the empty tomb. So, yes, he died, and it was necessary, essential that he did. But he didn't stay dead, and he lives today. So, Adam, I hope that answers your question. 340-9585 or toll-free, you can call us at 877-630-KSLR. Um, here is a question from Greg. Uh, he wants to know, how can a loving God order the destruction of entire cities? Um, Greg, you're talking about uh, the Old Testament. You're talking about uh, Joshua's um, marches through Canaan. Uh, two things we have to remember, and I'll get to your question directly in a moment, but two things to remember. One, God was judging the people who lived there. 
They lived wicked lives. They persecuted God's people, Israel. They served and worshipped false gods, even offering sacrifices of their own living children to those false gods. And it was time to be judged. Now we think, well, that's the Old Testament mean God, but wait a minute, Jesus is going to come back. You can read about it in Revelation 19 and do the same thing. He's going to destroy his enemies with the word. Why? Because that's what happens. Judgment is death. And it was time to judge them. He'd given them centuries. The Amalekites had more than 400 years to repent of their sin. They witnessed the miracles of God. And they rejected him anyway. They were accountable, and God, in his patience, waited generation after generation after generation. But eventually, judgment has to come. Eventually, judgment has to come. And that's what it was. It was the judgment of a holy, just God. The sin quotient of the Amorites, the Amalekites, and the others was fulfilled. And so, that was the form of judgment. Men, women, and children. Now, when we hear the men and women, they were adults. They made their own choices to rebel against God. But what about the children? How could God order the destruction of children? Well, whenever there's a troubling passage, Greg, look at the character, the nature of God. One of the things we know about God is that he's patient, unwilling that any should perish. His children weren't accountable. And when they died, they were spared from growing up just like their parents and being sent to hell forever. People that die, want to find mercy here? When people die who are not accountable, they go to be with Jesus. And these people would have gone to the places described in Luke chapter 16, Paris, paradise, the, the children would. And they would have been spared from being judged in eternity. So it turns out that was a pretty merciful thing to do. And a lot of times these questions are asked with cynicism. Like you say God is a God of love, but he committed genocide always with an honest seeking heart Greg always 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 look for the mercy there's a time when God runs out of patience and the world is going to be judged for the Canaanites that happened when God gave Israel the land their judgment was up now they had plenty of opportunities to believe but they refused the children who were judged. Well, we'll get to meet him in heaven, Greg, if you're a believer. We'll get to meet him in heaven, and when we meet him in heaven, believe me, they will be grateful having worshipped God for all these thousands of years. Here is a question from Jean. She says, it's a female spelling, that's how I know she if I have enough faith, will God heal my illness? Gene, the answer to that question is, God healing your illness doesn't have anything to do with your faith. God's will, whatever it is, if you're a believer, God's will is what you should pray for. It's okay with a grateful heart to ask God to heal you. It's okay to do that. In fact, be foolish if you didn't. But sometimes we treat God like he has to be dependent upon us in order to be healed. I want to heal you, but I just don't think you have enough faith. Can you imagine serving an impotent God like that? God didn't heal the Apostle Paul. Gene, God didn't heal me. I'm visually impaired and my eyes are getting worse and worse. I haven't driven now for 19 years. Everybody who knows me has prayed that God would heal me. We actually have a lady not 
too long ago, came to the church and I used as a sermon illustration that I couldn't see and it was losing my vision. And she left our church because, well, I don't want to listen to Pastor Ron teach if he didn't have enough faith to be healed. It has nothing to do with faith. Lots of people died. And by the way, Gene, the prosperity teachers, the faith teachers that teach you this nonsense, it's amazing that they're getting old and dying off too. And if the younger generation are going to replace them, they're going to die too. So it's really, really important that you just ask God and then like the Apostle Paul, you'll be told my grace is sufficient. Now that doesn't mean God will or won't heal you. But in the middle of whatever your illness is, Gene, you'll feel his presence. You'll know he's there. And you'll know he's got you in his hands. So don't get cheated by really, really, really bad teaching. We've got 30 minutes left in the program. I know you're home. I know you're cold. So give us some call, 340-9585 or toll-free, 877-630-5757. You're listening to the Word of Santa for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program is it still cold outside i've been in the office all day now in the studio 340-9585 for your live calls and questions it's 340-9585 my producer just said it's 28 degrees isn't that evil Here's a great question from our email inbox from Myra. What is the significance of Song of Songs, chapter 5, verses 6 through 8? Myra, uh, this is a poem. It is, it is a song. We're, we're looking at, at poetic liber- uh, uh, lyric. Um, so it's, it's symbolic, but it also, in Song of Songs, tells a story. Now, to understand this, I'm going to have to go back to verse 2, and I want to read this because this is important. Now, here's the one thing I want everybody to remember. As I'm reading this, we're talking about a real story, a historical story. This is Solomon, who is the lover. Uh, the Shulamite is the woman who stole his heart. Uh, they're real historical figures, so this is a love song about this whole relationship, about this experience. Um, but it's also much more than that. Because Solomon, who is the lover, uh, is a picture of Jesus loving us. Uh, The bride, the Shulamite, that's us. And Jesus is looking at us, and he's telling us how much he loves us. And when you get to this chapter, there's a troubling passage here that people don't understand. So I'm going to read it. Um, She says in verse 2, I'm going to go back that far. Uh, She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my lover is knocking. He's saying on the outside, Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. That's his plea. I'm I'm out here, it's cold, I'm getting wet, I've come to see with you, I've come to be with you. Remember, he's a king. And here's a response. This is describing a time that's sometime into the relationship. She says, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? His response, verse 4 says, she's, it's her narrative, but she's, my lover thrusts his hand through the latch opening. In other words, I, 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 I won't leave without you. He's reaching out. And then she says, my heart began to pound for him. I rose to open for my lover, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock. I opened for my lover, but my lover had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called, but he did not answer. The watchman, 
found me as they made their rounds of Sydney. Here are the, the, the verses that you asked about, Myra. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my clothes, watchmen of the walls. O daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my lover, what will you tell him? Tell him I am faint with love. Now, this is a portion of this poem where she's filled with regret. She had that moment of, oh, I'm already in bed. I've already taken off my robe. My feet are clean. I don't want to get up again. It's almost like she should come back tomorrow. And then when he showed his eagerness to come to her, she began to rethink, but then it was too late. Now, in verse 7, the watchman, uh, the ancient world was a tough place, and a single woman out looking for anyone or anything would have been in great danger. And this is what happened. She found these watchmen. They saw her, and they made it difficult for her. And, and if you take this literally, and I do, they beat her. They bruised her. They made fun of her, probably threatened um, to rape her. Um and yet in the last verse, her only concern is, Oh, daughters of Jerusalem, my friends, if you see him, tell him that I love him. I'm faint with love. She's saying, I'm sorry. Now, here's why, Myra, this is so important. There's times when we treat Jesus like that. Jesus is the lover of our soul. Jesus is the one who's searching us. He's the one who wants to spend time with us every day. And, and you know, we're the ones who say, Well, I'm too tired. It's too late. I, I don't want to open your word. and I, I, I'd pray, but I'd fall asleep. We have to protect our passion. And in this poem, for a moment, just for a moment, now there's a happy ending here, but just for a moment, her comfort was more important than her passion. And now she's sorry for it in this chapter. I told you there's a happy ending. But for many of us, Jesus is knocking at the door of our heart every day. And we ignore him. We've got other things to do. Or maybe we just don't want to be bothered. And then when Jesus pursues us, our hearts start pounding again. We, we want to be with him. And we know Jesus won't leave us. But that's what happened in this poem. Now, the happy ending, of course, is this one woman was the love of Solomon's life. It kind of makes it silly that he had another 999 women in his life. Every minute spent with any other woman but this one was a waste of time and really ripping him off from his own sin. But, Myra, this is a beautiful, beautiful love story. And I often encourage people, especially those who doubt the love of God, men and women, by the way, if they doubt that God loves them, if they doubt that God can forgive them, read just the parts that titled that Jesus speaking directly. But for a moment, okay, I'll go get him, and he was gone. It was too late. Don't let Jesus because of your spiritual laziness. Don't let Jesus kind of stand on the outside trying to get in. You go to him. He'll be found by those who seek him. And that's what we learn from this story. Remember, this is a poem. So there's a lot of figurative language, but there's beautiful language. I love the fact that he convinced her early in the book that there was no flaw in her. All beautiful you are, my darling, there's no flaw. And for those of you who know the story, she didn't think very highly of herself. We had a question uh, asked on the show, on the program uh, last week. Why was she concerned about the color of her skin, the darkness of her skin? Uh, because she was a working girl, and by that I mean she worked in the field. She would have been lean and fit. Completely the opposite of what was the standard of beauty for the time that she lived in. She would look at the other women, those who were considered beautiful, and she would think less of herself. And she would be very, very embarrassed by his staring, by the fact that he was taken by her. And he said, no, you're beautiful, perfect. And what he meant is the same thing Jesus means for us, perfect for me. So I hope that answers your question, Myra. Thank you very much for asking it. 
340-9585. Here is a question from Iris. Uh, Pastor Ron, should churches work together with groups that are not Christian but share similar values on issues like abortion? Uh, Iris, I, personally, I, I wouldn't. Um, you know, I'm not a huge, let's everybody get together with anybody who agrees with us on an issue. Uh, because if we don't agree on Jesus, we don't agree. It's that simple. Uh, I want, when I'm serving the Lord, no matter where it is or what we're doing or what cause we may be championing, I don't want to give the impression to anybody who isn't a born-again Christian that they're doing something good. A lot of people try to cover up their sin with good works. And so, no, you know, Jesus doesn't need a bunch of people together to do something. And here's, here's one of the things about churches that I think we really need to understand. We need to understand that every church has its own mission. Now, that doesn't mean we're down on others or we won't work with others, but, but we've got to be faithful to our mission. And what's frustrating for me as a pastor as I get all this mail, uh, both electronic and and regular mail, uh, with with pastors from other churches who are trying to enlist me and my church to help them in their vision. And my answer is always the same. Hey, we're pretty busy here. We're doing, we got our own vision to, to, to follow. I've never asked you for help and don't ask me for help. God bless you and I pray that the Lord blesses the work that you're doing. But your work is not my work. And I would say that is even more true, Iris, when you're talking about um, Catholics or Mormons, people that need to be born again and who are not. Uh, So they don't share similar values. They may have a similar take on events or public issues. But I, I certainly don't want to stand shoulder to shoulder be in the line of fire for an enemy who is always going to come against us when we're trying to do the work God's called us to do. I don't want to do that standing next to unbelievers. If if I was ever put in that position, those unbelievers would hear about Jesus and being born again the whole time we were doing any work at all. So um, I wouldn't, uh, Iris, condemn anybody who does work together. Um, but I just don't see any biblical precedent for that. I just think the world is the world, and Christians are Christians. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to our first call today. Paul from Seguin. Paul, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yes, sir. I just have a lot of issues right now that I'm dealing with, and I guess I need prayer. That's what faith is for. Uh, When we can't see it, we can't feel it, we need to trust it just because that's what God tells us in His Word. So I'm going to ask you to hold on by faith, but at the same time, I want to help you. I want to pray for you before we get off the air here, too. But but, but let me ask you a question. Do you have a church body that you're a part of? Yes. Okay. Um, Close in. Get, Get close to them. Uh, we're actually planning a church in Seguin, Texas. The, their first um, Sunday night study was going to be this past Sunday night. Um, um, if you want to, if, if you're uncomfortable going to people that, that know you or that you know, um, before we hang up, you stay on the line and leave your phone number with our producer, and he'll pass it to me, and I'll have our, our pastor who is planning out there uh, contact you. But these are the times, Paul, where what you really need to do is believe by faith what the Word tells us in the absence of the emotions, in the absence of feelings. God knows every need. He's there. He's going to teach you a lot during these difficult times. But at the same time, 
um, with a grateful heart. You can thank him, but never, ever, ever forget that he loves you. And he proved it once forever by dying on the cross for you. And Paul, if you'll draw near to him, the Bible says two things about drawing near to Jesus that I find unbelievably helpful for me. The first is that in his presence is the fullness of joy. You, you, you may think and feel right now that you don't have anything to be joyful about, but in his presence, there's the fullness of joy. And then in Nehemiah, he says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And the one thing you can't do, Paul, is you can't go through these trials that you're going through, these crises. You can't go through them in your own strength because you don't have any. So it's not a matter of, of feeling better or doing better. Right now, it's just a matter of you drawing as close to Jesus as you possibly can. Um, I'm going to ask you to give you a little homework assignment tonight. It's just uh, four chapters. Read the book of Philippians. You can read the whole thing for an average reader in less than 20 minutes. Um, if you are moved by the Spirit, read it more than once or twice or three or four times. Um, and let the Lord draw near to you. When Paul wrote Philippians, he was in prison. Um, he had been beaten. He had endured more than you can possibly imagine. He was in jail, and he and Silas were put in stocks, and they'd been beaten with, with, with the scourge. And yet the whole book, the theme is joy, not happiness. It, it's not pretending that everything's going to be okay. It's just drawing near to Jesus. In Paul's case with Silas, um, when it looked the darkest, when it looked like they would be executed the next morning, when their backs were ripped open, rats gnawing at the open sores, they just decided there's nothing we can do, so let's sing hymns. And they started singing the God. And that's what prompted God to move on their behalf. So, Paul, any way we can help you, we want to do that. But hang with me just for a moment while I pray. Jesus, as soon as Paul spoke, you gave me a little bit of a look into his heart. I could hear the pain. I could hear fear. I'm asking you, Jesus, now to wrap your arms around him as never before. By the power of your spirit, Lord, let him draw near to you so he can experience your goodness not based on what he feels, not even based on the problems that he's dealing with getting resolved. But just as he draws near to you, convince him that you've got him, that you love him, and that you'll walk with him through this mess. And I ask you, merciful Jesus, to deliver him. Whatever he needs to be taught, teach him. But most of all, Jesus, most of all, Wrap your arms around him and convince him of the height and width and depth and breadth of your love. Amen. Paul, if you need our help, uh, stay on the line. The producer will get a phone number for you, and he'll pass it on to me, and we'll make sure that somebody contacts you tomorrow. Um, God bless you, man. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. I'll continue to pray for you, so keep us posted how you're doing. Thank you, Paul. I love to be able to encourage hurting people. 340-9585. Here is a question from Mario. I uh, said, Jesus said that the cup, and this would be the cup at the, what we call the last sever. Uh, Jesus said that the cup was the cup of the new covenant. What is the new covenant and when did it begin? Well, it began then, right then. When he picked that cup up. Now, by the way, at the Jewish Passover, this would be the cup of redemption. It was set out uh, every Passover service, and it would be a cup that was awaiting the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, and yet it would never be used because the Christ did not come. Well, when Jesus picked it up, his disciples, those who would be apostles, would be moved. I knew that's who he was. And Jesus says, I'm going to die for you. My body's going to be broken. My body's going to take the punishment that your sins deserve. And that's going to fulfill the old covenant. Now, that's important, Mario, because 
the old covenant was a covenant of the law which resulted in death the law the only purpose of the law was to show us how far from god we are we couldn't keep the law we couldn't um we couldn't even come close and so the law was really a death sentence for everybody and so when he picked up this cup the jewish audience there would have expected this the cup of redemption Instead, he said, this is a cup of the new covenant, the new deal. And in so doing, Mario, he rendered the old covenant, the covenant of law, useless. Now, the reason that the law was useless is because it didn't accomplish God's purpose. God's purpose was to have fellowship with man, to live with man. Instead, man was going to die. And the new covenant changed all of that. It was a covenant of grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. And that's you, Mario, and that's me. And it began right there. When Jesus on the cross cried out, it is finished, well, the new covenant took effect. And no longer would anyone have to die guilty of sin. Because Jesus offered forgiveness. It started right then on the cross. And obviously, Mario, this time of grace, the, the, the dispensation we call grace, has lasted now for 2,000 years. May not last much longer, but we're in the new covenant right now. So that's what it is. Thank you, Mario, very, very much. Um, Wes wants to know, are some sins worse than others, or is all sin the same? Wes, um, obviously now, sins, uh, sin has different consequences, different degrees of sin. Certainly murder is worse than, than, than just screaming at somebody. Um, the actual act of adultery has greater consequences than than um, uh, lusting after a woman in your heart. But but see, the, the key here is that all sin separates us from God. All sin separates us from God. And when we accept Jesus, that gap is bridged and we are forgiven. But yes, there are some sins that are worse and have greater consequences. But the issue is sin, all sin. The first sin we ever committed is what condemned us. John chapter 3, Jesus said, speaking to Nicodemus, that we're condemned already. We're born in that condition. So what we understand here is that all sin separates us from God. But certainly all sin is not the same hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Here is, oh boy, I didn't realize time had gone that quickly. Um, here's a question from our mobile app from Drew. First John 3, 6 says, if someone keeps on sinning, they don't know the Father. Does this verse reinforce the idea that making an altar call doesn't necessarily mean someone is truly saved? Why don't pastors talk more about repentance? <laughs> During the reason we don't talk more about repentance. Now, I do. You know that because uh, you're, you're not in this part of the country anymore, but, but you've been to our church. I talk about repentance endlessly. Um, I also talk about altar calls. I think altar calls are important. However, an altar call doesn't save. A change of heart saves. The altar call is supposed to be a genuine response to your heart being changed. So what John says in 1 John is someone keeps on sinning, and it describes, it's in the Greek, it's in the continuous present tense, it describes a lifestyle of sin. And we have that all the time. People who say, well, I got saved, I was baptized, I go to Calvary Chapel, and yet they live their lives in, in a lifestyle of unrepentant, willful sin. And I tell people through all the time. What makes you think you're a Christian? Well, I was baptized. Well, baptism doesn't save. Why insert an invitation? That doesn't save. A change of heart, a transformed life is what proves you're saved. And John, this apostle of love, is as direct as he possibly can be in dealing with with, uh, this issue. 
Um, if you um, say you're a believer, say you love God, but you go on sinning, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So John was really, really direct, and we need to be that direct. If there is no repentance, if there is no change, Drew, then there's no conversion. Now, we who are Christians sin, but when we do, our hearts are broken because of it. And we ask for forgiveness. And then 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we just sort of view him as an eternal life insurance policy and we don't change the way we live, well, then that's an indication there's no transformation of the heart. And as I said a moment ago, if there's no transformation of the heart, there's no genuine conversion. So this is a very important message. It's the reason, Drew, that we teach through the Bible. Because this one issue gets resolved if you teach through the Bible. If we just throw out an invitation, hey, today you can make sure you're going to heaven. If we don't insist on repentance, if we don't insist on a change, then we give people false hope. And I think that displeases the Lord very, very much. We all know people who had an emotional experience with Jesus. They said they were saved. Maybe they got baptized, but then they fell away. Drew, here's a homework assignment for you. Read Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, and Jesus' explanation of what that parable means. It's a foundational parable. And um, what we know is that some receive it with joy, and because of the cares of this world is choked out, others' seed is scattered on shallow soil, and it pops up, and it burns. Um, The human heart is that soil, and we need to scatter the Word of God. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for the calls. It's now 26 and ice going down, so please, please, please be careful out there. We love you. Um, We'll be praying. God bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.